0: Listeners, I am Erica Monaghan, your host of today's History Exile episode, a New Books Network podcast series supported by Critica: Explorations in Russian and Eurasian Studies. History Exile is a podcast series intended to create scholarly dialogue across subfields. That is, to be a place where historians can discuss their work share their underlying assumptions, explore similarities and differences, and most importantly, step a bit outside their areas of expertise. So much of the work of the professional historian fosters narrow specialization. We become kings and queens of our own historical hills, and sometimes only rarely leave those hills. We can tend to live in scholarly communities holding much of value, but so narrow it invokes the image of an enclosed farm silo. History X intends to get us out of our narrow specializations and talking to historians across subfields. If you are interested in the mission of History X Silo or if you think you have an idea for an Exilo conversation, please reach out to us. You can subscribe to the podcast series and find our contact information on the History X page at NewBooks Network. Now to today's conversation. Adam Smith wrote that political economy belongs to no nation. It is of no country. It is the science of the rules for the production, the accumulation, the distribution, and the consumption of wealth. However, Adam Smith regarded the science of political economy in practical terms, one is quite hard pressed in history to find a case where governments, be it an empire or a nation, were completely left out of the picture. Or is it? Questions about how people and other types of entities organize and generate capital and the role that governments play in all of this fills libraries. The ramifications of the dynamics and rules surrounding money have proved so consequential and gaining momentum in the centuries since the industrial revolution, if I could add. That it is no surprise that historians have devoted so much energy to the study of political economy. And this, in the broadest terms, is the subject of our conversation today. Today, we put two recent books that bring important perspectives to these questions in conversation with each other. I am pleased to introduce our books. We discuss Empire Incorporated, the corporations that built British colonialism by Philip Stern, published by Belknap Press of Harvard University Press in 2023. And we also discuss Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals and the Dream of a World Without Democracy, published by Penguin Books, also in 2023. The periods of time being studied are centuries apart, during the course of which there's been much innovation but we hope to come away from today's conversation with a better sense of what overlap our authors see, et cetera, et cetera. And indeed, I get ahead of myself. Let me introduce our authors. Philip Stern is an associate professor of history at Duke University. His work focuses on various aspects of the legal, political, intellectual, and business histories that shaped the British empire. He is the author of The Company, State, Corporate Sovereignty and the Early Modern Foundations of the British Empire in India, and of Mercantilism Reimagined, Political Economy in Early Modern Britain and Its Empire, published in 2012 and 2013, along with many other articles and edited volumes. Our second author in um, <laughs> of our second book, um, Quinn Slobodian, is a professor of history at Wellesley College and the author of the award-winning Globalists, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism, which has been translated into six languages. He is also, um, he has written much else. I encourage you to look up both of our authors. And Quince Lobodium is also a frequent contributor to The Guardian, The New Statesman, The New York Times, Foreign Policy, Dissent, and The Nation and without further ado now i'd like to invite our authors in chronological order of their books to introduce to us their books so phil please tell us about empire incorporated
1: yeah thanks erica uh thanks for having us on and thanks for this idea quite i'm looking forward to the conversation i think there is an amazing amount of overlap and points of intersection among our work um so you mentioned uh, and thanks for for the lovely introduction I, um you know i wrote this book called the company state um about a decade ago which was a an exploration of the way uh, sort of an investigation into the ways in which the east india company had laid the foundations for the uh for its later transformation into a territorial empire in the first century and a half of its existence a lot of historians had sort of generally gone with this idea that the East India Company had sort of suddenly or accidentally transformed into an empire in the middle of the 18th century, an idea that didn't sit well with me. And one of the arguments that I made in that book, the center central argument was that the company didn't transform into from a merchant to a sovereign in the middle eighteenth century because it had been a kind of sovereign or a form of political entity all along, and there were many reasons for that. But one of the core reasons was that I traced this to was its existence as a corporation, uh, which was a p- political and legal form that we tend to today to associate with economic activity and business activity, but which uh, you know actually goes back to the medieval period as a form of organizing political communities, particularly in the church or in. Um, uh in empires, particularly cities and and uh, and other forms of, of governance. And so you know from there I started to think and look a lot about into the ways in which the corporation had sort of structured the British Empire. and I had this I've said this before it had that experience after writing that book, of um, kind of like that experience you have when you learn a new word and then you start to see it everywhere. Corporations started popping out at me everywhere. And I started to realize that the phenomenon was much bigger, but also more complex than the story I had told about the company state a more of a more diverse and complicated ecology of companies over time. So the result of all that uh, 10 years later was Empire Incorporated, which is a, a survey in a sense of the history of the British Empire through the vantage of uh, the corporation and the role of the corporations, joint stock companies, and other forms of, you know, in a sense, private enterprise played in structuring uh, and making of the British Empire. And the title, uh, the best way of describing the book in the short time I've got here, is is to say that you know the title is uh, has kind of two meanings to me. The one, the most obvious one, Empire Incorporated, Corporate, is that it, it's it's a it's a study of the evolution. Uh, of the role of corporations and joint stock companies like i said in in shaping the british empire with a particular attention to the way to companies that actually take on roles of governance in the empire uh and and, and in a sense in a sense do the work of uh governing uh anglophone settlement and expansion all around the globe the other meaning of the word uh, of the title is that it's also a study of how the british empire the one we tend to associate with um uh, the british empire which is to say the state's empire the the you might think of the british empire proper was built in a much larger sense than you imagine or a much greater sense than you imagine uh, through the incorporation or you know cooptation regulation absorption often purchasing of colonial uh, spaces and colonial jurisdictional rights that had been established or laid the groundwork laid by these corporations or these other forms of, of private enterprise a kind of cobbled together form of empire, if you will, or a kind of a conglomerate form of empire. Uh, at one point, in the book I think I call it an empire through merger and acquisition. Right, so. It's those two kind of simultaneous narratives, which gets, I think, to the point you were making, I mean, one, I think, a common point of conversation today, which is that our stories about states and empires, a story about a history that is only, political history only driven by states and empires. I think both of our works kind of get at the fact that that's a very oversimplified and, and misleading story about how to think about history to, from the 16th century to today. Um, and in this book, what I essentially do is trace the story kind of thinking of it as a um retelling of the story of the british empire from a character who's been very important but marginalized as a sort of supporting character the corporation and as a result uh, you know could think of it like a you know like a minor character now like rosencrantz and guildenstern of imperial history or something like that um and when you do that the point is that you are able to upset a lot of the narratives and the ways in which we think about about the the patterns and periodizations of empire which maybe we'll get to later, maybe we won't. It's also a kind of intellectual biography as a kind of legal and institute of a legal institutional form spread out over about 400 years. And through the book, I essentially trace the argument arguments as to how the corporation evolved over time to support and transform empire, how it both competed with, but was also at times in alliance with other forms of power, including the state. Uh, and also the last thing I'll say is try to take on a kind of Assume narrative and other histories about this that the corporation's power lay in its inexorable ability to become a kind of behemoth or juggernaut and instead focus on the power of the corporation uh, as being one of paradox and its capacity over uh, to to essentially be public and private at the same time and to navigate among various uh, jurisdictional forms, sometimes making, making the corporation extremely vulnerable, but sometimes making it extremely powerful. And so I look a lot at the ways in which the corporation can mobilize these capacities over the course of 400 years uh, in an effort to also make an argument for thinking about the contemporary kinds of issues. I think the sorts of things that that, that, that Quinn looks at through genealogy um, and through its lo- the long histories, the ways in which um, these develop. So the final point I would say that I think is important about the book or at least important to me is that the book is also very much about the role history plays in shaping ideology. All of these companies, in many respects, at every various at every point, look back to the past to make an argument for legitimacy. So in a way, looking at the corporate form and empire, not not in the way a lot of people have sort of looked back at it as a kind of modern innovation, but actually in many ways showing how at every stage of the game, people arguing for this kind of way of doing colonialism, which was always contested, did so by saying they did this because it was the way it always had been done, not that it was actually a, a new form in a various way. So it's just a different way of thinking about the connections between past and present in that respect.
0: Thank you so much. Okay, now we will go to Quinn. And Quinn, if you would, please introduce to us Crack Up Capitalism.
2: Sure. Um, yeah. First of all, Big thank you to Erica for making this happen and putting us into conversation. It was a great pleasure to read uh, Phil's book, and I'm sure it will be to talk about it. So the book Crack Up Capitalism, sort of like Phil's, is a bit of a sequel to the one that I did before. And in a way, um, it's helpful to contextualize it that way, I think. So I published this book called Globalists, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. And that book was... About the 20th century's shift from a world of empires to a world of nations and the way that that political shift produced new challenges for kind of stabilizing global capitalism. The challenge of um, making sure that these new nation states didn't mistake sovereignty for ownership or um, dominium for imperium in the categories used by people in my book Was something that was really a fixation for a group of people who um, we can think of as neoliberal intellectuals. So, Friedrich Hayek, Ludwig von Mises, um, Milton Friedman, and others. So, the book was really about uh, this sort of century long search for a kind of a guardian of what they called the World Economic Constitution what new institutions could um, police the boundaries between the nation state and a global economy? And they kind of had a series of candidates who were mostly disappointing. They were interested in the League of Nations as something that was able to kind of um, supervise and police this, um, you know, the, the claims that might cross between ownership and sovereignty. The United Nations was even less satisfactory. Eventually, things like international investment law became a little bit more promising and the European Court of Justice. And the book kind of ends with the World Trade Organization as an example of what um, international lawyers call the kind of juridicization or the legalization of international economic relations. So now you don't have to just appeal to a government, you can appeal to this legal code that stands above governments that theoretically can enforce claims about ownership, property across borders in a consistent and reliable way. So that book was really about the sort of scaling up of schemes for organizing and um, stabilizing global capitalism, and in many cases, accelerating um, the the reach of global capitalism into all of our lives. It was written just before and then sort of was, was released at the time of the break with that kind of 1990s consensus of globalization. So the election of Trump, the departure of Britain from the European Union, meant that this idea that there was a a multi-level governance structure that was kind of keeping capitalism safe was no longer something people felt like they could rely on anymore. So witness the headlines of the last few years, right? Everyone is talking about a time of fracture, fragmentation, crack-up, break-up. And the book that I wrote after that, the Crack-Up Capitalism book, was an attempt to kind of respond to these ambient discussions, but also to kind of unsettle a lot of the assumptions that I think were inside of them. So first of all, I don't think it's fair or helpful to say that we only hit a moment of fragmentation or crack up in 2016. The book focuses in on and sort of empirically, uh, the through line is the emergence and the proliferation of these so-called special economic zones from the 1960s onward. Which were the kind of ways that capitalism worked through creating small, you know, ring fence spaces for um, manufacturing in far flung sort of supply chains to quasi sovereign tax havens to sort of urban corporations inside of big cities like London or New York. Um, So the world was already operating through fragmentation or through what um, the historian Vanessa Ogle, who um, Phil also cites in his conclusion, calls archipelago capitalism. So fragmentation didn't just appear overnight after 2016. There already was kind of a functional fragmentation that I think is often overlooked in our um, search for ever kind of smoother stories of capitalist relations at higher and higher levels. So first of all, the book was intended to kind of just shine a spotlight on that and say like, look, it's not enough just to look at nations and assume that that's the space within which capitalism works. You have to look beneath the envelope of the nation and find all of the legal geographies and economic geographies inside of nations to see where their concentrations of trade, concentrations of exchange, and so on. Furthermore, the point of the book was to kind of say, that's not just a kind of pragmatic way to organize capitalist relations. But for some people anyway, who are watching that, it was an inspiration for maybe a kind of politics that could go beyond the nation and could maybe, you know, be, prefigure a future where formal states governed by representative um, legislatures are no more and we return to a completely privately ordered, um, medieval-style legal geography. So the so-called anarcho-capitalists who I describe in the book, or the sort of hardcore libertarians, um, in many ways are like welcoming the crack up and embracing fragmentation. And what I describe as as a kind of a dream of a world without democracy, the more I learn about early modern empire, the more I realize is also a kind of a memory of a world without democracy that in, in often explicitly, but very much implicitly, they are fantasizing about an era before the kind of principle of popular sovereignty became dominant before the principle of national self-determination became dominant. They're fantasizing about the era that, (laughs) that Phil writes about from the 1500s right up into the 1800s. So for that reason, I think there's a kind of, there's a perfect symmetry, between our books. And I think the, um, the theme of crack up is a curious temporality because it sort of at the same time projects something that could happen through a technologically enabled sort of future, but it also, um, has deep reference points in a kind of a pre-modern form of political organization that, um, they glean in sort of bits and bites in their writings from the history books that others have written. So I guess I'll just leave it at that. We can talk it from there on.
0: Oh, that these these are two terrific introductions. And as as promised, I am going to mostly hang back and and let you talk to each other. So where should we go? Who would like to begin?
2: I mean, I have definitely I have lots of questions, but I wonder if if you wouldn't mind. Um, There's sort of two things, like meta questions I want to ask. And one is about kind of methodology, like sort of writing style, actually. And the other is about the kind of political stakes of the approach that you're taking in this book. Um, So I'm going to start with the first one, because it's always this is also a chance for like a modernist to talk to an early modernist. Right. Like, actually, we don't necessarily talk to each other that much. Um, I mean, Lauren Benton was one of my professors at NYU. I read, you know, some early modern history, not enough. But I'm always struck by the way that you all write. Um, <laughs> which is to say, and maybe maybe you automatically know what I'm saying, or but maybe you don't because you're like a fish in the water. But like, it's a very elliptical style of writing, right? It's like it it is it seems to be, oh, Weary of weary of um, overly blunt sort of thesis statements and certainly like repetitious thesis statements seems to like prefer to show rather than tell by these um, often quite obscure sort of episodes, anecdotes, momentary encounters that one sort of has to weave their way through and then eventually once you've exited the forest you can kind of look back and say like okay i think i now see what that forest is like whereas i feel like a lot of modern historians and i'm very much um guilty of this will just sort of like bang you over the head with their thesis like this book is about this i'm about to say this the world is like that and here's some evidence and just in case you forgot i'm saying this that and the other thing so do you know what I mean? Like, do you would you agree that early modernists tend to work through accretion of anecdote and and empirical kind of evidence rather than, you know, the blunter projectile?
1: You know, it's an interesting way to think about. It. I'm not. I don't know if I if I'd say if I'd be willing to sort of diagnose all early modernists or all modernists in one sure. Or anywhere, yeah, maybe. but, but no. Speaking for you know, yourself, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, but I, I mean, I mean, I recognize the distinction, and I was actually reading your book, um, rather admiring the direct, the directness of it in, in, in a variety of ways. I mean, there are many points in reading through your book where I was, um, lamenting. I didn't have it in hand when I was finishing mine that we, we probably both should have delayed a little bit <laughs> to, to, to pass them to between one another. But I think part of the problem is, and I, I mean, this, this, is a, we could do the whole podcast on this cause it's very interesting. A, I want to say like really, brilliant point about having this conversation itself and its role. I mean, one of the reasons I set out to write the book the way I did, because I'm by training an early modernist, but you know, the book ran through the 19th and 20th centuries. And um, I have this epilogue, which was actually on the 20th century, which was originally supposed to be a whole chapter to itself, but actually ran up mostly against time and word constraints. Uh, I'd already forced a, a book a little over length um, on the press. They might not agree with my the little part. Um, and so, um, you know, so that one may be left for a future time. So one is, you know, to have that conversation, I think the part of the problem in the history of the British empire is the failure of this this conversation between early modernists. as a result, like we cordon off the empire that way. But to get to your point about writing styles, I, I think the part of the problem is that people are tired of hearing early modernists just tell you things were complicated or that they're hybrid. We, we, you know, one of the big, I think, I think, Early modern writing in the past, if you go back a gen- couple of generations, might have been a little more direct because there was the state, and the state did these things. Um, you know, I remember even you know taing as a graduate student courses on this, thinking that you know looking at textbooks and realizing that you had these. You know, you you saw these part of the inspiration for my work were about narratives you saw in texts about um, Britain did this or France did this, and you're like, but everything else tells me there's no Britain in France, right? And so. So but I think that that one of the problems is that um, at least I get frustrated with myself when I let abstractions like we talk about hybridity, we talk about uh, uh, overlapping, we talk about um, uh, uh, complications stand in for the actual specificity of that. So I guess in doing this book, I kind of was I, 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 you know, the show don't Tell model was sort of the approach, which is maybe there's a, a, a way through the aesthetic contribute to, to, to um uh to communicate that that is either deeply enlightening or deeply frustrating depending on how you take to it as a reader so i, I mean i could see that point uh yeah yeah
2: can i also then because i think that leads into the political question um and this is something i've been writing about in the context of empire and finance as sort of um two fields of inquiry which i think sometimes talk past each other people who work on imperial history people who work on financial history even though they shouldn't talk past each other and one thing that it that has really struck me and especially this has to do with also looking outside of the academy is like the rise and rise of the frame of settler colonialism as a way to as a kind of a master key for understanding you know empires past and then like politics present right um, maybe this is also because I'm Canadian and the the land back movement and indigenous rights movements are just so powerful right now and so overwhelming in their um, physical and their visibility in, I think, mostly great ways. And it seems like your narrative of venture colonialism, as you call it, and corporate colonialism as well, they... And, and the work of, I think, good early modernists, it's sort of, it has, it has different points of emphasis than the sort of parables of settler colonialism, right? Um, I think that, you know, thinking about like the Raoul Pack um, documentary, Exterminate All the Brutes, is I think like a good stand-in for like what's become a kind of a popular, heavily moralized version of empire in which, you know, white settlers came as, you know, claimed the land to be empty and then, like, slaughtered anyone in their path and enclosed as they went, sort of to expand the footprint of white civilization and white empire. I mean, the work of people like you just shows how we can't rely at all on those. Like, it seems like you were constantly at, you know, strenuously sort of unsettling any assumption we have. I didn't know my own ignorance that there were like multiple British East India companies for like, or more than one. So it seemed, and you know, you're saying, no, here it was like this here. It was that no, here they did make treaties with the local Sultan here. They did make arrangements with local indigenous people. So it seems like you're, you're, you're sort of making it difficult to have a simplistic, moralistic one, you know, perhaps as you're suggesting overly abstract, Sort of bludgeon with which to proceed through the past, um, which I think is for the best. But it, it it then it when you bring that lens back to the present, it points at different things, right? Instead of pointing at like the land back movement and land struggles or water struggles, it points at more of the stuff that that I work on too, like the transnational corporation, the um, you know the, the forms of authority that kind of cross borders to govern capitalism. And I wonder what you think about that, like the sort of the prominence of enclosure as a master metaphor and sort of settlement and the way that a kind of focus on the corporation might both work for with and against that.
1: Yeah, it's a really, it's a phenomenally insightful. It's a great question. I mean, it's something I struggle with trying to, to, it's something I struggle with answering concisely. So let me see if I can do it quickly because it then raises a, a kind of interesting point of comparison, as you said, between our Two books, or a point of connection, actually more than comparison. I mean, so on the one hand, I think the book does try to complicate our definition of settler colonialism, not in its, not in the sense of its political or contemporary uses, as which which I think are 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 valuable uh, in the way that it the way that settler colonialism as a concept is employed, not necessarily as a, as a, as a historic concept, but as a concept of an ongoing form of expropriation. Right. I think both of us actually in our different ways in our book point to ways in which that use of settler colonialism, whether it's the right term for it or not, or whether, you know, but, but the concept is very useful and valuable because it shows that even in the places where you're not seeing settler, you're not seeing white, settlement colonialism repeat itself you're seeing the processes there's a point in your book for example where you know you, you talk about sort of the relationship between you know urban spaces that rely on these remote spaces for extraction right for energy for all of these sorts of things and so it, i think it does show the dynamics of what people mean when they say settler colonialism about how even in these spaces this is an ongoing dynamic I, what i, I do Take issue in the book, I guess, with the way the historiography and the history has, um, and it's pre- precisely that I guess I would say it's precisely that um, fusion or that that spectrum of colonialism that I think is valuable. So, so in a way, I want to make. I guess I want I would like this book to. To to be able to reinforce that colonialism comes in many different forms and guises, and to re- reduce it to just the state versus people is to miss the mechanics of how it happens. But at the same time, I do think what one thing I'm taking to task in the book is a, a kind of um, heuristic or um, a, a, a schematic. Ability to distinguish the way that historians of empire do between, say, settler colonialism, colonialism of rule, or colonialism. Right, that a place like India gets coded and classified as not settler colonial because there was not a majority British population there, and that um, uh, and it gets it gets coded as a kind of different place than Canada or the United what becomes the United States. Whereas if you look through the lens of the kind of agents. Then the, you're kind of looking at the Hudson's Bay Company or the East India Company or any of the number of land settlement companies in North America or the Australia projects that I talk about in the book. You're able to actually look at a, at a kind, of, kind of common dynamic and in an imaginary where there were people still in the 1830s who imagined 1840s who imagined that uh, uh, India could become a place of settlement, especially during, say, say the Irish famines, uh, places where but what became New Zealand, Canada and and and, and North America and Australia. Uh, could have been this other kind of colony, as people are sort of thinking about it. But also to think about that the dynamics of expropriation um, don't really resist that kind of simple distinction. It's um, even more I'd say even more important to me in this book—is to distinguish—is to—is to explode the distinction historians have to make between formal and informal empires. To, to get back to your point about finance, right? Uh, I wanted to think a lot about the way in which the we, we think about the history of colonialism or we, we, not we, probably not the people on this call, but that the history of colonialism tends to be thought of as having these two different forms. One, where you color the map pink and have formal territorial rule, and others where it's, it's the pressures of military finance that get inside of regimes, but actually um, don't formally colonize. And to me, A those distinctions don't hold up when you start to think about the role that finance plays in shaping colonialism but they also um, when you when you do and this is a kind of interesting point of comparison i wanted to reflect on with you when you stop thinking of empires having to much like democracy or uh, much like the polity in your book as having to take a particular shape and form or size right then you start to realize that you have what you might th- what might be formally thought of as formal colonialism inside of all of these quote-unquote informal spaces um i was struck for example i talk a lot i don't i actually don't talk much in the book because i my original first drafted but i really liked about 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 the british in 18th and nineteenth century honduras and so when i saw it recur in your book as a as a site of this same, the set of same fantasy a long genealogy of these kinds of uses of these places through like the establishment of plantations and the peopling of these plantations by pushing the people who are there out and bringing in settlers in that case for mahogany extraction um uh is you know as i often say if that if that's informal empire it didn't really feel informal to the people who were subject to it and colonization is a form of of polity building so in that sense i mean i actually think it i actually think ex- exploding the category of settler colonialism and thinking about its complexities actually reinforces our capacity to think through what the political value of thinking about the term as an ongoing form of 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 expropriation in his possession. and dispossession. The other thing I would add is that my whole book is about thinking about the mechanics of how this happened. So the story they just come in and do it has always been very unsatisfying to me because how is it done? And one of the things that I focus on a lot in the book is are the 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 those the the either real or fictional and often it's in some legal ambiguous place between those things um of of, of how the Europeans particularly the British justified and legitimated forms of expropriation to themselves through the use of the concept of private property right and the idea of, of this this spectrum between private and, and, and public and public property which you know is again a kind of interesting uh point of comparison which I guess gets me to if I you know sort of turn around you know take the question and turn it around and give it to you which is like you know um how do you when you were if you're thinking about about our two work together you know um, as a kind of union of the a kind of détente between real modernists and modernists you know um, you know I was so struck with the repeated examples in your book of the fant- of these medi- they're often medieval fantasies right it's it's um is it uh, Milton Friedman's son who's the larper is this yes. is this right did I get yeah, that right David Friedman um, yeah David Friedman. Um, and the ways in which the these are these are fantasies made real of a world that didn't quite exist that way in the way that they sort of imagined but so at the one time it's a it's a kind of deeply historically embedded story, but on the other other hand, it's it, the concept of cracked up struck me that there was something to crack up, right? And so I'm, I, w- I was wondering how you know how in thinking about that long genealogy, as said, or colonialism or something like that, like like how much do you did you imagine writing this book that these people wanted to break up something that existed or that in fact they were trying to come up with. A way of capitalizing something that never quite existed in the first place, right? That 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 coherence of the what what's the real fantasy? I guess to me, is it is it the fantasy of returning to the medieval, or is the fantasy that a post forty five nation state system actually ever managed to get itself quite settled, if that makes sense? If thinking about say Vanessa Ogle's work and thinking about all these ways in which those the, those those havens sort of came out of de- decolonization, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's it actually I can answer that by also saying something or or sort of that your last answer made me think about about your work, which is and I'm also thinking here about Stephen Press's Rogue Empires, which I, I, I take that you like very much as well. And I thought it was a remarkable book. And so so here's the thing. And I think this is a way of answering your question to me, too, is when you look at just the basic facts the facts you lay out in your book it's it's almost it's it's remarkably sort of obvious in a way that it was mostly private entities that carried out the kind of business of empire until relatively late in the game and yet as you say and i think you're exactly you're absolutely right that even as late as you being in grad school you would read something like britain did this or france did this right so i i mean the question i had in the back of my head was you know at what point did we start to entertain that obviously false belief that the private entities out there pursuing their own endeavors, even if they're acting under Royal charters or whatever, were somehow, you know, usefully described as the same thing as the metropolitan metropolitan state back at home. Like, was that a a product of um, that precisely sort of late empire consolidating historiography and kind of popular narrative that wanted to make the map painted pink seem as if it had always been thus and not a a sort of a patchwork series of sort of contingent um, adventures and sort of like uh, fortune seekers of the kind that you and, um, and Stephen describe it so well. Like Stephen's example is showing how the scramble for Africa was just like an unbelievably like uncoordinated effort led by just like the least scrupulous people that you could possibly imagine. But then who were very quickly sort of retroactively validated almost as like agents of um, imperial expansion, because it was useful for those in power to act as if they had always been part of the plan. So part of, so I, I, would suggest or expect that the answer is something to do with sort of modern, the expansion of modern public education, in the late 19th century into the 20th century, and the need to kind of naturalize and, and, and firm up uh, a kind of um, always already British presence all over the world and so on that obviously came under attack in the course of decolonization. But I think, more to the point the kind of things that we're writing about are also more visible under conditions of the kind of globalization that we've been living under for the last 25 plus years in which it just has become more and more obvious that you know much of the the organization of social life is done by private entities um, often with more or less levels of like non-accountability for public from public authorities and a feeling that um, it doesn't make sense anymore to think about a world that is only organized into states because there are obviously these state spanning entities, these corporations, these, you know, pools of, of liquidity. There are all kinds of things that don't fit inside the neat uh, contours of national boundaries. And most of us feel I think, somewhat unsettled by that. A lot of people are in the business of making a lot of money based on figuring out the ways that the world of the economy and the nation state don't align perfectly and sort of doing arbitrage between those two two levels. And then there are the people in my book who are, as I've said before, kind of like sniffing out the places where the kind of pools of private ordering go, go deepest and trying to figure out how to like dig dig even deeper, so um, they find accurately that you know that you can use something like a gated community to produce a kind of bespoke set of customized laws that are opt in, and you can kind of literalize the social contract and thus produce like an exclusionary political um, entity inside of. A broader nation state, or you can figure out how to put your money, you know, in places into trusts or whatever that act as kind of, um, you know, dark geographies inside of a kind of, you know, imperfect fiscal surveillance apparatus that we have inside of the states. So they they find places that already exist as sites of kind of Opacity or the evasion of public authority, and then just try to chip away more at them and to kind of expand them. And you know, in drawing our attention to those places, I think they they do what you're suggesting, which is they they make obvious to us that like there never really was full like let's say democratic oversight of the actions of um, the private economy. There never really was uh, you know the even distribution of the benefits of growth, or even at the benefits of the post-war era. But they also act as agents of, I think, qualitative change. So I'll, I'll give you the example of um, homeschooling, right? In, in, into the 1970s, in the United States, there was like, you know, a few thousand people that were homeschooled. It was very, very unusual. It was illegal. And you needed special exemptions to be able to do it. Through the policy entrepreneurship of the specific small group of libertarians who also sniffed the kind of the changing zeitgeist around um, the counterculture as well as religious fundamentalism and so on, managed to get new laws put into the books in every state in the United States such that it's much, much easier now. And the number of homeschoolers have sort of, you know, grown by a hundredfold. Thus, I think, you know, punching holes or perforating in the in the metaphor I use in my book, Perforating some of that kind of shared civic institutional fabric upon which, anyway, the the ideal typical post war um, state was supposed to be constructed, right? Without shared and even enforced participation in those institutions of the state, whether they are education, tax collection, or you know, um, um, using utilities or EMS services and so on, once you start to allow for the privatization of those, hiving them off one by one, then, you know, you, you show the lie of a kind of uh, people living inside of a single society and you say, no, no. So, I think that, so, I, so in that sense, yeah, I think it does, you know, it both harks back to an era before it exposes the fact that that uniformity was always a lie, but then it does also kind of open up, the cracks even more. So even if things were always a bit cracked up, they can be more cracked up. I
1: would. Or, so just- or those cracks get sealed over and then recracked and the, you know, yet anybody who owns a house knows that when you do that, the cracks are bigger and wider because, because no, I mean, that's absolutely, that makes a lot of sense because like I was, it's funny you bring up the homeschooling example. I, I was so str- I mean, You should see the, the number of, uh, you know, bookmarks and flags I put in the book of these moments where, you know, like so. For example, my hope one of the main I- interesting things in my book, or I shouldn't say interesting, interesting that I became interested in, and I'll leave it to other people to decide if it's interesting. Was there's also a narrative in the history of companies and colonialism, or com- well, actually, the history of companies and capitalism in general, that um, you know, that uh, getting back to our our um, our early modern modern rapprochement, which is that that there was a world of chartered. Colonialism or chartered companies that gave way in the middle of the 19th century in the sort of uh Euro-Western world to a kind of a moment of administrative registration, right? Which is, you know, now, now we make companies by going and filing some paperwork. You only need a handful of people, and you can even be a company to yourself. And that's a it was a sea change in a fundamentally different world. So to me, what was really striking was the persistence of chartered colonialism and, and, and chartered capitalism to some extent. Beyond that um, moment, and then to see, for example, the 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 sort of genealogical evolution. Your book from the charter school to the chartered city, and the ways in which that this 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 idea continues to persist. But what to me is really interesting, and I'm curious, you know, how you back to a methodology question too, because I struggled with this as well when writing which is one thing I really, and and you correct me if I've misread you, but um, one thing I saw in common between our approaches is that we both see a kind of, and similar to to Stephen's book, as you mentioned before, we both see um, uh, the ways in which people are mobilizing their interests and mobilizing, um, or essentially looking for ways to, to make money or looking at ways to sort of capitalize on these situations, but at the same time, try to take their the fact that they take their may possibly take their ideas seriously seriously right that, that this is also this is all these are also people who are whose interests and ideologies can align conveniently but it's very hard to know when to decide to take it seriously and when not to take it seriously When is it a, a front or a cover for a brute interest and when in fact does do some of the actors in your book really believe they have a better way of organizing and understanding government i i I have found many instances, as did you, in different moments and different times, of people saying the joint stock corporation is a much better model for organizing the polity than, than in my case sometimes monarchy. And ironically, back then in the seventeenth century, the accusation was that it was it was revolutionarily republican. And one of the things that seems to evolve by the twentieth and twenty-first century is that it actually becomes anti-democratic um uh uh you know but 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 in the early 19th century you see similar people making similar arguments you see for example about um you know investment in the polity meaning that reform should happen by voting by shares or how much you actually have rather than just being an individual or a un- or, or 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 an atomized unit things like that but i've always gotten the sense that that from you know immersing myself in these people that they they either convince themselves of the truth or that in fact of their ideas or that they in fact believe it's one of my goals in writing these kind of work, it's the same thing with my first book on the East India Company, was to was to actually point at how powerful and dangerous it can be, in fact, when it's not just written off as mere interest, but as an ideology. It's one of my frustrations sometimes with the history of company colonialism that I sort of wanted to set back, which everybody sort of assumes, well, sure it was a company. Profit was the bottom line. And you know, in many ways, it, it can be, it can be both. So, you know, between that and the other thing I noticed in commonality between our two books, which is the balance in the book between stuff that happens and stuff that are actually fantasies that are just pitches. You know, it, it in, in that sense, it's an intellectual history about a world that didn't happen or or a world that couldn't happen, and I'm not really sure. what My question is actually, it was just, it was a, it was, I was just constantly struck with. I, it was a very, we both were doing the similar things in that way. It's a bit of a struggle in both the, on both those fronts to tell a history, right? I don't know what you think about that. If that's something, yeah, that no, I've thought you.
2: Yeah. One thing that that uh, occurs to me that is very similar. A couple things do. One is what you're saying. I think is very true, which is that you know, shareholder governance, for example, one stock, one you know, one stock, one vote. Let's say, looks like a pretty retrograde form of organizing human affairs. But it depends what you're comparing it to, right? Like compared to absolutist monarchy, that might actually be you know an advance or like a, a new a way of of, of distributing decision making and power in a more uh, interesting way. If you compare it to one person, one vote. Popular sovereignty, then it doesn't look as good anymore. You get a very similar dynamic with these zones, these special economic zones. If you put them inside of a country that doesn't have a functioning democracy, that is an authoritarian one-party state, um, and you allow for some level of the recommodification of of, of land and some level of like free enterprise, then. Relatively speaking, sometimes they can look like sites of freedom compared to the world around them. If you put a special economic zone that is immune from local government oversight into Liverpool or Teesside, and then it's it looks much different. It looks less democratic. So the contextual nature of and the historically specific nature of like whether a charter company is uh, a progressive political form or a regressive political form, like very much depends on the place, the time, the people there, the exact form that they've decided to, to organize the, um, the entity under. And I, there's a, there's interesting things that we probably won't have time to talk about, about like the difference between like a seniorship and like there's, there's different ways of a trust. Like there's, there's, I think, extremely important, subtle differences about the form of, Property tenure that you choose within these private uh, formulations that you know range from kind of a Georgist quasi socialism to like a more um, a more Lockean kind of um, privatized uh, form of ownership that I think have consequences for governance that are really important and that like I think the smart libertarians spend all of their time talking about that like when we, once we get rid of states what form of land tenure will we choose and and what will the consequences for our future form of statecraft be based on how we organize our relationship to the land Which another pitch for a recent book is Joe Goldie's long land war book which I think is brilliant on occupancy rights but the, thing that, the main thing that I was thinking about is how the dynamic that you describe is very similar to the dynamic I describe in that there's this kind of circling around one another of the public authorities and the private uh, charter companies in which both think that they're taking advantage of each other, right? Both Or both have a sense that they're getting more from the other than the other is getting from them. So the states are pretty sure they can instrumentalize um, the use of the, 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 the private capital and the, and the private um, um, energies that the, that these charter companies bring. In my case, it's, it's states and these special economic zones where they think, okay, we're ceding a bit of sovereignty technically by saying that we're lifting certain regulations inside of this area. We're allowing more foreign ownership, foreign direct investment, whatever it is. Um, but we think that we're actually controlling them. They're not controlling us. And so most of the story is is that like who's right? And in my book, it's sort of it's sort of a twist ending in that it turns out that these zones that anarcho libertarians thought were going to be sites of um, the, the 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 unleashing of entrepreneurial energies and freedoms are actually completely in the harness of central authoritarian states. China and Saudi Arabia and Gulf states are the ones who are fondest of special economic zones and they're not at all sort of innovating from inside or anything they're just they're they're being used for the most part by the state rather than operating against the state but this the the other so that's one way of looking at it just like who's who's in the who's in the driver's seat who's in the saddle and who's the horse but the other way is what you're saying which is to so to sort of like enter the thought worlds of the private actors, whether they're the zone people or the charter company people and say like, what is it that they actually want? Like, is, as you say, are they just hustlers and grifters, adventurers and merchants, just in different forms across the centuries? Like, are we dealing with the same personality type here basically? And if so, maybe you don't need to say that much more about them, except for the ways they can be useful idiots for or like, you know, uh, Grandizing themselves in different ways at different times or is there a kernel inside of their own um, visions of a possible future in which their sort of dance partner like the state or whatever has been actually um subsumed and and destroyed right i think that like that it, it's, it's so hard for us to think of a world in which private ordering only prevails because we're so used to thinking of the public and private in this endless kind of tango that, you know, to just sort of sit with fully private uh, government, not as a, as a complement to public government, but in, but as the only game in town. Is I think it's strange that we haven't thought about that more, right? We've thought so much about like complete socialization of human relations, complete nationalization, the extinction of private property altogether. I mean, not only has it been tried, but we've also spent a lot of time contemplating it. But rarely do we flip it and think about just like the 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 rule and the reign of purely private relations and what that might look like. And I think it's worth um, asking what they imagine in such world.
1: Uh, yeah, no, I mean exactly because I think I think the those imaginations, as you show in a number of different instances, and I, I think I hopefully show in mine book two, even if you get some pretty wacky, unrealistic thought experiments mm-hmm they filter down either at the moment or generations later to things that actually end up happening, maybe in a more modified way uh, for a variety of reasons. So that's, I mean, that's one, one reason to look at it. I mean, to me, it's a, you raise a really number of interesting points there. I mean, to me, a couple of things that you made me think of one is, uh, you know, you get back to your original question, you know, know, show not tell, or how do you talk about these things? It's, it's because, you know, especially when, you know, I'm, Telling the story kind of over a much, sort of I guess, longer arc of time, it really resists because of all of these dynamics you're talking about. It resists any one simple dynamic. I mean, including the fact that that you know, as you show in the book, your book too, states are infected and infused by these libertarian actors or by these corporate actors, and vice versa, right? There's a there, you know, there's a movement. They're not mutually exclusive in terms of personnel or in terms of. Power, right? That there's a dynamic that kind of moves back and forth over time or in different places and geographies. Um, the other thing that you made me think about was that, um, you know, you said about is is it aggrandizement? Are they just adventurers, you know, or do they, or you know, or are they philosophers in in a sense, or in their own, in their own minds, or to other people? What's interesting is I had a number of characters, and I, I think I make make the case about some of the characters in your book who are actually aggrandizing themselves by trying to be philosophers right? That, that, that it's, 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 that somehow social stat that is, that, that, that not only does it burnish their credentials as financial actors, but that various points of social status or the emotional value of having Twitter followers or, or ex followers, you know, or, or a variety of different forms of capital, social capital and cultural capital, and political capital come with trying to create this space for yourself. I mean, you know, one of the most vociferous uh, you know, most persuasive and impactful 19th century uh, advocates for corporate colonialism was a guy, it was Edward Gibbon Wakefield, who Marx, you know, cited in Capital as the most significant, I forget, the, the most significant political economist of his time because of his arguments about how to recreate capitalism on a colonial frontier. Um, but the guy was was one of the sketchiest characters you could possibly imagine, actually came up with his idea for, the, uh, for South Australian Corporate Colony while in, in jail uh, with a couple of other people in jail and it's a longer story and gets worse and worse if you tell it start getting into the details of what this guy was like so there's a couple of different like you know for me as a bit of a tangent for me one of the other sort of objects of telling the story about companies and colonialism is to also get away from a, a narrative about purely what what the, the uh, historians and you'll, you'll know the work with the historians uh, uh, uh Kane and hopkins called gentlemanly capitalism i mean it not all of these some of these projects were deeply aligned with state interest and some of them were 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 quite you know departed from it or were people who were doing these things precisely because they couldn't get access to that kind of power or that kind of um that kind of capital so i you know i think taking taking the ideas seriously because of the it's not just about i guess what i'm getting at is it's it's not just about taking ideas seriously for their own sake, which I think is important or their power later, but also about how the ideas themselves produce a form of power or, or, or rendering yourself as an important theorist has a power in the real world, if that makes sense, you know?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, the effort of both of our work is to also not just have capitalism as like an agent or a protagonist that, you know, requires no further explanation. Um, And because actually I think in a way like the cigar chomping, you know, plutocrat who just wants to make money like the trump basically figure is actually less dangerous than the person who starts to theorize as you're saying because when that capitalist starts to theorize one of two things is happening either they're actually planning for that moment we're talking about where like you extinguish um, existing forms of statecraft altogether and just instate like a corporatocracy Or, more likely, they're figuring out ways to enter conventional politics. And even despite maybe their anarcho-capitalist leanings. And I'll give you a very concrete example, which is Javier Millet, uh, the Argentine, until very recently leading candidate for president, who is a self-described anarcho-capitalist. And who, fascinating for me, I mean, people like him are a dime a dozen, but he is important because he has managed to pull all this support. Where did he pull his support from? It turns out that the previous socialist or Peronist leader, Kirchner, had lowered the voting age to 16 with an idea that that would allow the youth to express their, you know, their, their more progressive tendencies. It was really criticized by the right. Conservatives thought this was going to be a disaster. But in the event, the youth vote went overwhelmingly to Millay, the anarcho-capitalist. Why? Because under decades of austerity and structural adjustment, the Argentine economy has been destroyed and most young people work in the informal economy. And so for them, there's no reason to trust the state. Um, They completely identify with his um, sort of brutal rhetoric of like the social Darwinist virtues of competition, because that's the world they live in. Right. So, so if you have, and there are parts of the world that continue to, you know, for various reasons descend into situations in which, the total private ordering of life is more of an everyday reality than a kind of anarcho capitalist fantasy. Then that is fertile ground for people who you know, preach that as a, as a form of politics that may work still through kind of parliamentary channels, but in doing so is you know, laying bombs in, in you know, the remnants of what could be like an administrative or redistributive state. So I think like the theorizing capitalist, you know, is someone who we need to be constantly kind of on guard for. And, you know, unfortunately, we have to transcribe their ravings, no matter how uh, hard it might be sometimes.
0: Oh, goodness. I, I hate to interject and break this off, but I think in the interest of time, I know you both have things um, to move to. I need to um, interrupt to stop us, but I I want to thank you so much there. um for this conversation, so many, as I, um, so many kind of questions are pinging in my mind, including, um, this theme that you've both brought into about, you know, the ideas that are, are, are ideas driving this when are ideas a foil and when are they, when are they real motivators? And, um, if, if earlier in our conversation, I was thinking of, um, listening to, um, as a, you know, russian trained person (laughs) thinking about the power of the 20th century binaries of socialism and capitalism to just organize the way people thought they should you know act in the world and thinking was there a comparable ideology you know we always say guns god glory to what extent to whom and then as phil is bringing up that there are these people that had real visions for how to Organize things, and and Quinn, think, your comment about well, depending on the context, one share, one vote might have been an improvement. You know, just gives us so much to think about, and also the one of these main differences between the early modern world and the world we live in today being mass politics. That if that if a projector in the early modern world had to appeal to the court versus what, how does mass, how do mass politics and technology change the ways them. Well, I'll stop there. You see you see where we, I'm going, and we could go on so much. But I want to thank you so much for your time. I want to thank our listeners for staying with us. I encourage you both to pick up um, the works of Philip Stern, his most recent book, Empire Incorporated, and Quinn Slobodian, Crack Up Capitalism. Uh, But um, as you've heard, they both have um, other really important monographs and articles to read as well. So thank you, listeners. Thank you, audience. And I will look forward to um, learning more from you in the future.
1: Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank Thank you.
0: you. Bye bye.